0: Alright, grab your Bibles, take out your Bibles, turn on your Bibles, use a Bible in front of you, and turn in the New Testament to the book of Acts. Acts comes right after the four gospels. Uh, Today we are in a fascinating section that begins in Acts chapter 19. It's page 1113. And those Bibles in front of you, give or take a, a, a couple of pages, and we are going to look at crazy, crazy. Uh, cool stuff today. But let me just back up. I am really glad to be back. We were out west with our our family uh, a week ago, and while we had almost everybody uh, together, our, our daughter, Christine. Now, Christine is the sixth out of our seven kids in our crazy blended step family. Well, Christine got engaged, and we were snow skiing, and she got engaged on a chairlift. And just as Daniel was giving her the ring, she dropped it. Not really. (laughs) I just knew that would be what some of you women were thinking. You're all holding on to your rings right now. (laughs) Actually, uh, Daniel used a substitute ring on the chairlift and Christine did not drop it. And then we celebrated and we are super uber excited in our family. Now what I want to do is transition uh, to the Bible. And the Bible, by the way, says thou shalt not lie, especially from the pulpit. So, <laughs> just wanted to mention this. But we are coming now to the city of Ephesus. Paul's ministry, I should say, in this crazy huge uh prosperous city of Ephesus one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire and Paul now comes and has a ministry here it's recorded in Acts chapter 19 and 20 we're going to look at both and there's all sorts of crazy things that are happening uh, but there's two things, just two things I want to focus on today. I want to fo- focus on idolatry in chapter 19 and community in chapter 20. So let's begin with idolatry. Idolatry is the subject of Acts chapter 19. And let's pick it up in verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now the way was a name for Christians. For Christianity, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we read verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis. Now, Artemis was the Greek goddess of hunting and fertility. And the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. It was a huge deal and these silver shrines were were replicas of the temple so Demetrius let's continue reading brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there he called them together along with the workers in related trades and said you know my friends that we receive a good income from this business and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. Now note that, because the church of Jesus Christ was exploding. And now he quotes Paul, and he says, he says that gods made by human hands are no gods. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the d- temple of our great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and, be- and began shouting, "Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar and the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And all of them rushed into the theater together. Now you can go to Ephesus today. And the archaeology of this theater is just incredible. Held about 20,000, 25,000 people. You can see it. It's, it's just stunning. Verse 30. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Then we have this interesting comment. Even some of the officials of the province some of the Roman political leaders who had become friends of Paul sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Now, we'll stop there. Uh, the story continues, but the riots quiet down. Now, idolatry, we're talking about idolatry, is a huge, huge problem in the Bible. As a matter of fact, uh, some scholars, the Jewish scholars have said the central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. Think the first commandment. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. And idolatry is a big problem in the book of Acts. You go back to chapter 7. As Stephen spoke out about the centuries of Jewish idolatry that ultimately led to the Jews being blinded about who Jesus Christ was. And so they stoned Stephen to death. Now go back two pages to chapter 17. The gospel is now moving uh, from the Jews to the Gentiles. And throughout the Roman Gentile world, the cities, major cities, were full of idolatry. So look at verse 16. Paul is in Athens, and he says, well, Paul, it says, Luke tells us, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed, distressed to see that Athens was full of idols, Now go to our chapter, chapter 19. Paul has traveled, now he's in Ephesus, one of the major cities of the Roman Empire. And now this idolatry explodes in a riot. Why? Why? Uh, what's behind that? Why, why has this happened? Well, look at the end of verse uh, 26 in chapter 19. Look at this last statement. Demetrius, the silversmith who has a huge, huge financial stake in the prosperity of idolatry, quotes Paul. He quotes Paul's teaching. And he says, well, he says that is, Paul says that gods made with human hands are no gods at all. Now how would Demetrius know that? He didn't go to church. Well apparently the reason he knew that is this was something Paul had taught over and over all the time. That idols are not gods. I mean the Roman world was full of idols, Paul took it on. And Paul had taught that so much that it had come to the attention of the outsiders like Demetrius. So here Demetrius quotes Paul's teaching. Now do you see what that means? It means when Paul preached the gospel, when Paul taught the Bible, he he regularly um, differentiated the gospel from idolatry. Uh, because he knew you wouldn't fully understand grace unless you understood it in contrast to idolatry. So let me give you an illustration of this. Go back to chapter 17. Look at verse 29. Paul is speaking in Athens. He's speaking to unbelievers. And he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not... think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So he's taking on idolatry, saying that no gods made by human hands are gods. And then in the past, verse 30, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, and he's going to go to the resurrection. Now some of you uh, maybe think, well, of course, Rob. Rob. Uh, This problem in Athens, this problem in Ephesus, this problem in in the Roman world with idolatry, we should uh, expect these were pre-scientific, superstitious, ignorant uh, uh, people. Paul uses the word ignorance. And so you dismiss idolatry as something pre-scientific people did. And then you miss the point. Because the reality is, in the Bible, idolatry is a very sophisticated concept. It integrates intellectual, psychological, cultural and, and spiritual categories, areas. You see, according to the Bible, idolatry isn't merely bowing down to a a statue like we see here with Artemis. Uh, You may believe in God today. You may go to church. You may be very successful. But if something in your life is more important to you than God for your happiness, your significance, your uh, security, then that's your idol. And you say, oh, hold on. How can you go from what's happening here in Ephesus 2,000 years ago to saying that today? Well, the answer is, according to the Bible, idolatry isn't doing bad things with statues made by human hands. It's the disposition of our heart. So way back in the Old Testament, look at Ezekiel 14, verse 3. What does it say? It says these men have set up idols in their hearts. And we come to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 in verse 5, greed is idolatry. It's idolatry. Now do you see what that means? It means that idolatry is the human heart taking something that is good, a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. And it's you in the deep recesses of of your being uh, thinking to yourself, I can't live without that. So let me line this out. Let's say you're in junior high, high school. Uh, You take a good thing, to illustrate this, you take a good thing like friendship or approval or or acceptance. And if you turn it into an ultimate thing, then what happens if your friends don't like your faith, then you drop your faith. Because your idol is fitting in. Your God is acceptance. Your God is approval. You may say you believe in God. Uh, but functionally, God, the God of the Bible is not your God. Or let's say you're in high school or college, grad school. Uh, You take something like pleasure. Pleasure is a good thing. And you make it an ultimate thing. So what do you do? Well, you engage in sex. You engage in porn. You engage in alcohol, drugs. Because pleasure is your functional God. And you maybe go to church the whole time. Now as adults... We do the same thing and more. We take good things like comfort or careers or income or, I I mean, uh, pick it, your appearance, uh, retirement, a a hobby, and we make it an ultimate thing for us. And it's often an unconscious thing. And, And we bring that idol into the center of our life. And we still go to church. We may not go as often. And, and we wonder why in the world does God seem so distant? It's idolatry. Now we all know that addictions. I, I mean alcohol addiction. Drug addiction. An addiction to pornography. Are, are terrible things. And, and we get that those. Uh, that's idolatry. It's taking. A, uh, it's taking something and making it an ultimate thing. But. We do this with good things all the time, like take family, your parents' approval, or your kids' success, or you as an adult being really good at your job or really good at a sport or an instrument or whatever. And way more than we care to admit to ourselves It's become an idol. And we have these idols at the center of our lives. And then what happens is one day you wake up, like Rhonda and I did one day, or like many of you have, and your spouse is dead, or left, or your job is over, or your kid has failed. And if you've taken a good thing and made it an ultimate thing, you're shattered. You're destroyed. And and my point, friends, is let's be really careful here. You and I on the insides are no different than the Ephesians 2,000 years ago. They had Artemis. We have sex, money, money. Comfort, approval, on and on and on. Hundreds, thousands of things we can turn into idols. There are three or four, five, six idols in my heart that I will battle with each and every day of my life until I die. And I'm a pastor. John Calvin was right. The human heart is an idol factory. There are surface idols like appearance, performance, and then there are deeper idols like significance, satisfaction, security. And our culture, our culture reinforces each and every one of them, telling us we're free to do whatever we want, believe whatever we want. There's one more thing I want you to see here, and that is not just the pervasiveness of these idols, but how, how potent they are. Idols are powerful in our, in our lives. I mean, think about it. Paul has arrived in Ephesus. Paul sets up shop. He's teaching. He spends three years in this city. And he's teaching and he's teaching, and along the way, he's pushing back regularly against idolatry. And what happens in this major city in the Roman Empire? It causes a riot. I mean, you take, try to take away something from another person that is theirs, and they find out about it. Well, man, they're mad. But if you try to take away from another person something that's an ultimate thing in their life, a surface idol like alcohol, a a deep idol like control, and success, they go ballistic. They riot. Now this is fascinating, it's so very interesting because on the one hand, the Bible tells us idols are empty, they're powerless, Uh, uh, but on the other hand, if you resist your boyfriend's pressure to go to bed, or your friend's pressure to party... Uh, or your boss's pressure to, to fudge the numbers to overinflate them, him, or, or this person's or, or, or that person's. Man, watch out! You're bumping into idols. And what's behind idols are dark, sinister, demonic forces that seek to destroy. If Paul had gone into this arena, this theater here in Ephesus, he would have been killed. He would have been torn to pieces. Idols are powerless on the one hand, according to the Bible, and they're powerful on the other hand at the same time. So I say all this to say, man, be really, really careful. Think a lot about what you bow your knee to. Because if it's anything other than God... will seek to control you in order to destroy you if you make it an idol. So that raises the question, well, what in the world are we to do? How do we find victory in this battle? Uh, Pastor uh, Tim Keller, New York City, has written a wonderful book I recommend to you on this subject called Counterfeit Gods. In his book and in some of his sermons on this subject, what he says is the only way you and I can break the power of idols in our lives is to recognize the cost, the cost. What it cost Jesus Christ. You see, while Paul here in Acts chapter 19 was spared from the angry crowd, earlier, Jesus Christ wasn't. Jesus went to the cross died in our place for our sins. He bore the guilt. He bore the cost of our idolatry by dying for us. It's the table. It's communion. It's what it pictures. In other words, Jesus went to the cross to put an end to our idolatry without putting an end to us. So the solution... To our battle with idolatry, the, the key isn't to flee the world, isn't to love your family less. It's to look to Jesus and love Jesus more. And keep him supreme, keep him at the center. To see his life, his suffering, his death, how much he loves you. And to let that continually wash over you, bask in it. Rejoicing it each and every day of your life. In other words, the key to idolatry, your idolatry, my idolatry, isn't anything we do. It's resting in seeing what Jesus Christ has already done, believing it. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Paul Tripp. He's written a book called um, How People Change. And in his book, he's got a page where he has seven questions you and I can ask of our idols. I've been using his questions, and they help me. And I want to share them with you, and let's look at them. There's blanks at the beginning in each of these questions, and that's for you to fill in your particular idol. So question number one, uh, look at it. And let's just insert comfort. Let's say your idol's comfort. Comfort, you ask, you look beautiful to me right now, but when did you ever leave your place of prominence and glory to humble yourself for me? Or let's go on to the second one. Let's say it's pornography or sex. And you ask of, your, of that idol, when did you ever enter my world to suffer on my behalf? I mean, think about it. Did pornography ever die for you? Or Let's say it's money, the third question. When did you ever shed your blood so that I could be cleansed from my sin? or maybe it's uh, uh, approval and certain approval in the fourth when were you ever raised from the dead on my have, behalf when did you ever promise to give me new life and power let's say number five it's control when did you ever promise to send the Holy Spirit to fill me with true comfort that would help me to please God when my earthly comfort was threatened or question number six when did you ever promise to intercede for me to my father in heaven so that I could be strong in trial when did you ever promise to come again number seven and redeem me from the things that capture me and make me their slave do you see what's going on so in the moment of temptation in the moment of pressure in the moment when this idol is rising up inside of you for dominance you ask these questions and what these questions do is get at the superiority of jesus christ's love for you when did a single idol die for you which idol is taking you to heaven Man, I love those questions. Now let's go on. We're going to leave idolatry in chapter 19. We're moving to chapter 20. And we want to shift gears and we want to talk about the subject of community briefly. And what I want to do is I want to talk about some indicators or some elements, just two of them, of thick, not thin or superficial, but thick spiritual community. Now in chapter 20, in the second half of chapter 20, what is going on is Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesians. Actually, he's saying goodbye to the elders. And so this section is a wonderful section on leadership, but I want to look at it more broadly, and I want you to see two elements of community. Let's read beginning in verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. And in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Element number one, tears, tears. It's verse 19. Paul says, I serve with tears, but look what he says in verse 31. He says, be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. That's astonishing. I mean, wasn't Paul arguably one of the greatest minds in human history? Uh, This strong, fearless, spiritually mature male? And here he says he wept continually. So what's behind this? Well, a couple things. Go back to verse 18. One of the answers is that he became one with them. Paul does not say, "I came to teach you." Paul says, "I came, uh, or I came to." Uh, he says, "I came to live with you, live with you." By the way, let, let, let me just say, this is the problem with social media today. What social media does is it narrows are connection points and you can hide anything you want and all you do is reveal just a slice but Paul says man I came to live with you and when you live with people um, you can't do that you can't hide you serve, you minister with people so Paul's implication is he didn't hide anything He wasn't about image management, Facebook. He exposed himself, strengths and weaknesses. He made himself available, vulnerable. Then in verse 19, look at verse 19. He mentions great humility. Now, I want to say something that some of you are just going to have to take by faith. Don't get mad. But the only person that is shocked by your weaknesses is you. Everybody else gets it. But you are shocked by them. And so what do you want to do? You want to hide them. Uh, We all do this. We want to push them away. We want to uh, uh, pretend. We're not going to post them. And what's behind that? Well, what's behind that for each and every one of us is the the pride of the human heart, either manifested in inferiority or superiority. It's both pride. But when we are humble, Paul talks about great humility, we see ourselves as God sees us. and, And so we don't wear a mask. We don't pretend we know more than we know or we can handle more than we can handle because we recognize we're created to be not independent, but dependent. Now hear me, humility wasn't a virtue in the first century Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago any more than it's a virtue today in downtown Chicago. We exalt competence, being on your game, being sharp, So the question is, if it wasn't a virtue, why does Paul emphasize it? Why does he describe it with an adjective, great humility? Uh, One of the answers, and there's a number, is because the human heart, our hearts, uh, believe um, that that we can always uh, attain our own salvation. So we're continually trying to justify ourselves, prove our worth, establish our significance. And if you're religious, you will use terms like salvation. But if you're not religious, well, you won't use the term salvation. But what you will do is you will tell yourself that the extent of my achievement is the measure of my worth. Or as others say, the measure of my achievement is the measure of my worth. And even though you don't use the word salvation, that's a form of self-salvation. It's a form of self-justification. So as others have pointed out, and as this is especially true if you're a non-Christian, then what happens is you are stuck on a spectrum of achievement for life. And at one end of the spectrum, if you achieve, man, you love your life, you love yourself, and you become full of yourself and you become arrogant but at the other end of the spectrum of achievement if you don't achieve or if something hits you and comes out of nowhere that's not even your fault man you hate your life and you can hate yourself and you can lapse into depression and bitterness and anger but it's humility that gets you off the spectrum of achievement. How? Well, humility is the human response to grace. God's grace. And it's God's grace that gets us off this achievement spectrum. Look at verse 32. Paul calls the Bible the word of grace. The word of grace. Now, uh, now, how is that? Well, that's because the Bible tells us we are way worse than we ever dared to believe because of our sin. But we are way more loved than we ever dared to dream possible because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's called grace. It's the gospel. And when the gospel comes into your life and sinks down into the recesses of your life, it destroys the achievement spectrum. And you just stop pretending, playing games. And you're humble. And you're free to become open. Because you know it's all grace. And so, like Paul, you care about people. And there's tears. Tears, because you care so much. Now there's a second element. The second element is here in verse 20, and it's truth. A thick spiritual community is characterized by tears and it's characterized uh, by truth. Verse 20 is an amazing verse. It's so full of an emphasis on truth. Notice Paul says, I didn't hesitate, man. I didn't hesitate. I didn't shrink back. Uh, from declaring the truth, preaching and teaching the truth. As a matter of fact, I did it publicly and and house to house, but I want you to know it wasn't my effort, it wasn't just a knowledge thing, he says. I didn't want you just to fill notebooks, man. I wanted to change your life. So he said, I focused on truth that was helpful. Helpful. And according to verse 30, Paul was scared to death that people were going to come after him that would do what? That would distort the truth. So why is truth so important? Well, one of the reasons is important, if you want to get to know someone, you just can't believe anything you want about that person. I mean, think about it. Either he was an NFL running back or he wasn't. Either he has a drinking problem or he doesn't. Either she has a really good relationship with her family and friends or, or, or she doesn't. And, and you could go on and on. You say, oh, no wait, Rob, this is a free country. We can believe whatever we want to believe. Well, not if you want to get to know someone. And the same is true with God. I mean, the world tells us we are uh, uh, nothing more than a collection of time plus chance and a few amino acids. And the Bible says, no, it's way more complex than that. You've been created by God and made in the image of God. Uh, The world tells us that all roads lead to God if there is even a God. And Jesus comes along and says, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Both can't be true. And so the purpose of the church, the purpose of thick community is to convey truth. But if people are unsure about the truth, if, if people have questions, if, if people are on the outside looking in, if, if people are new or people coming out of pain, people have a lot of doubts, uh, we weep with them. We weep. It's tears and truth that describes Paul's ministry. And let me just say, what the world needs, man, what the world needs from uh, those of us in the church is people who will not shrink from the truth and people who will not withhold the tears That's exactly what your friends, that's exactly what your family members need. Because truth without tears can be so very oppressive. Uh, But tears without truth can be meaningless. An authentic uh, community is is characterized by both. And what's the result? (laughs) Well, friendship. Spiritual friendship. Look at verse 36. I'll conclude with this. I don't want you to miss this. At the end of chapter 20, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them, all the leaders, elders, and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and and kissed him. So what is spiritual friendship? What does a healthy dating relationship, marriage relationship look like? It's kneeling in the same direction. With the same passion to the same God. Uh, but how do, how do we uh, achieve this balance? We can err, fall off this thing in so many different directions. Well, now we come back to Jesus. Just as Paul was leaving. Ephesus to go to Jerusalem. So before him, Jesus went to Jerusalem, right? Only when Paul went to Jerusalem, Paul was surrounded by friends. But when Jesus went to Jerusalem, at the end of his life, Jesus was abandoned by everybody, including the three he took with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. Foreshadowing that God would ultimately abandon him on the cross. Turn his back. On Jesus. So Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we ask the question, we must ask the question, why? Why would God do this? Why would God allow his son, Jesus Christ, to become the loneliest person that has ever lived? And the answer is so that if we believe, so if we look to Jesus, We can become friends with God and we can become friends with each other. And and that friendship is characterized by truth and and, and tears. Let's pray. Uh, Father... We live in a world that tells us that idolatry is not just okay, it's the path to freedom. It tells us to pursue whatever we feel like pursuing. And we live in a world, interestingly enough, that tells us that community is unnecessary. Unnecessary. And so we ask that you would work in our lives by your spirit that we might see you and live as you want us to live. For Jesus' sake. Amen.